evil has been a very strong tool in the hands of skeptics and critics who say, look at all the terrible things going on in the world, and you say this God is good and God is great and so on. Why doesn't he do something about it? We know very little about Habakkuk himself. The word Habakkuk either means embrace or a Babylonian garden plant. You can take your choice, what you would like, when you hear the word Habakkuk. Um, He lived in Judah, the southern kingdom. However, we don't know his birthplace. We don't know his tribe. We have no other personal information, although in the first verse here, he does designate himself as a prophet, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, indicating that probably he was known fairly well in his day as a, as a prophet. Now, you need to have one date in mind so kind of know when this is going on, and that date is 600 B.C. It takes place a little bit before 600 B.C., a little bit after that, but just to get your hands on something here, we're talking about 600 B.C. This is the time period in which Habakkuk lived. If you look at the last three chapters of 2 Kings, you'll find the end of the southern kingdom. Uh, king Josiah was a very good king, but then came King Jehoiahaz, King Jehoiakim, King Jehoiakim, and finally Zedekiah. In 721, over 100 years before our magic date of 600, the Assyrians came into power, and they captured the northern kingdom of Israel. So the northern ten tribes, they're gone. Just Judah, and attached to Judah was Benjamin, was all that was left left there in Palestine. In 612 was the fall of Nineveh to the Babylonians. The Assyrians had their time, and now the Babylonians overthrew the Assyrians. That was prophesied by Nahum, the book right before Habakkuk. Uh, The Babylonians quickly ascended to power to the north of Judah. Meanwhile, to the south was Egypt, and Egypt was a rather strong power at that time. So here's little Judah in between the Babylonians and the Egyptians to the south. In 609, King Josiah was killed in battle, and then the Egyptians were defeated by the Babylonians at the Battle of Carchemish on the Euphrates River. Under Josiah, there had been a great spiritual revival, but after Josiah, things got worse and worse. Soon the people of Judah relapsed into great sin and idolatry. Apachic lived during this critical time when things were falling apart, and the Babylonians were growing in power. And uh, this is just not the best time in the history of of Judah. Um, He was puzzled, though, by what he saw. This spiritual decline among all people, among the people of God. Why is this happening? Why is not God doing something about it? Now, we take all this history stuff. That's a very brief synopsis. We think to ourselves, well, that's a long time ago. That's ancient history. That's, uh, you know, Dr. Gary Fernand's department. Why are we even talking about it? Well, you need to keep in mind that our personal lives, our personal salvation even, ties in with what God is doing in history. To quote Martin Lloyd-Jones, the Bible puts the question of personal salvation into a larger context. Ultimately, the main message of the, Babylonian, uh, of the Bible's concern is the condition of the entire world and its destiny. And you and I as individuals are part of that larger whole That's why the Bible starts out with creation of the world rather than about man. The trouble is we are inclined to be exclusively concerned with our own personal problems, whereas the Bible starts further back, it puts every problem in the context of this worldview. So here's little Habakkuk, this one individual in the midst of this historical context with this problem that's going on with the Babylonians to the north and the spiritual 
uh, decline of Judah at this time. And um, he's going to have to deal with this. And so he begins his, his book here, the oracle. That's a technical term for a prophetic judgment. The interesting thing about that Hebrew word is for oracle is it has to do with being heavy, a burden. This is a heavy message that Habakkuk is going to have to receive and pass on to his fellow people in Judah as he lifts up his voice with a warning of impending doom. Habakkuk is going to be warning the people of Judah of what's ahead for them is coming. Habakkuk the prophet, what he saw undoubtedly through a special supernatural revelation to his spiritual uh, sight. Now, if you look at verses 2 and 3, you compare them with the end of the book. And you see something, uh, something happened here along the way. For example, verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? You'll not hear. Verse 3, why do you make me to see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Now you go to the end of the book and the whole thing changes. Verse 18, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. What a change between, Lord, what's going on here? And at the end of the book, he is rejoicing in the Lord. Well, the change happens as we go through this book, and you will notice that. Habakkuk was a man with a keen eye. He saw the evils of his own nation and the outside world. Everywhere was injustice, lawlessness, moral and political decline, immorality and vice were rampant. So we find here an anguished cry of a man who wants justice done. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? He'd been doing this for a long time, yet nothing seemed to happen. We bring this right up to our day. You know, we look at our, our state of the nation, what's going on in the United States at this time. We look at the status of the church throughout the world and all the weaknesses of the church. We wonder, why isn't the Lord doing more to solve these problems? So this is the problem of history. History is taking place, certain events are taking place, and there's a God in heaven, we believe that, accept that, but why isn't God doing more? Why are things getting so much out of hand? Verse three, verse, end of verse 2. I, I cry to you, violence, you will not save. Almost as if Habakkuk is coming to the Lord and said, Lord, I've been calling this to your attention. There's violence in the land. Just as somebody might say, there's a fire over here. Or murder has been committed. Lord, violence characterizes Judah. Are you hearing me? Hello, are you there? Will you not save? Verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. His prayer seemed to be a one-way street. There they go up to heaven. Nothing's coming back down. Goes back up to heaven again. Lord, where are you? Silence. Nothing seems to happen. In those verses 3 and 4, he shows the opposite principles of evil and justice. He wants justice, but all he sees is injustice there. He recognizes that his society is disintegrating. Now, his frankness seems rather shocking, doesn't it, when you stop to think about it. Who is Habakkuk to... Go up to the Lord and say, Lord, why aren't you doing something more? Yet, uh, 
I think it's interesting that that kind of frankness can only come from those who believe in the Lord, who have confidence in Him. Because the believer senses this tension in our lives between what we know is right and what we see is wrong. Between what we want to do to please God, we know what God's will is, and yet we see all this against His will, all this rebellion against God and His ways. This tension is there. The very fact because we are trusting the Lord, because we are believers, is the reason we are frustrated at why we don't see more done to confront the evil and wickedness and sinfulness of men. He begins verse 4, so the law is paralyzed. Interesting Hebrew word, it means chilled, stiffened, without energy. The law, which ought to have been a bond of security and social welfare, seemingly has not been working. Paralyzed. God, people aren't obeying the law. The law isn't being carried forth, the commands of God. And so the wicked have hemmed the righteous in, end of verse 4. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now, is this relevant to our society or not? Boy, you read this and you think, well, this is you know, how I feel regarding what's happening in our world today. I felt like this. I wonder why God isn't doing more. Well, as we come to verse 5, suddenly for Habakkuk, there is good news because the Lord finally is going to answer him. Oh, Lord, thank you. Habakkuk must have thought, perhaps God is going to send a great revival like in the time of Josiah. And God's people will be humbled and come back to him. That would be great. Maybe he's going to send the Messiah himself. He's going to come and deliver us from our enemies. Or maybe the Lord is going to bring a supernatural judgment, something uh, like uh, lightning, fire, brimstone, a plague. Wouldn't that be great? That'd be a way to get people's attention. So he's ready for an answer, the Lord to give to him. But if Habakkuk or even ourselves ask God's questions like this, we better brace ourselves for the answers. I personally believe the Lord always answers our prayers, but except the problem is we expect a certain kind of answer. And when that certain kind of answer doesn't come, then we think God hasn't answered our prayers. We must always remember we pray Nevertheless, that thy will be done. So what is God's will? What's God's will going to be for Habakkuk here? Just a, another illustration of this is the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. He had this thorn in the flesh. He said, three times I pleaded with God to take this away from me. And the Lord never did. Paul, that was the answer he wanted. Take this physical infirmity from me so I can be more effective in my ministry. And the Lord said, no, Paul, I'm not going to do that because I want you to learn that when you're weak, that's when you're really strong. You'll depend more upon me if you keep that thorn. So the Lord does speak here. He makes no effort to gloss things over. He doesn't deny Habakkuk's evaluation of the situation, nor does he reprimand Habakkuk for his candid words. All right, Habakkuk, I've been listening to your prayers for some time. And here's what I'm going to do. We can see it back and say, oh, okay. Lord, I am ready. I've been ready for a long time. 
What are you going to do? Habakkuk, first of all, verse 5, look among the nations. Wait a minute now, Lord, I'm concerned about my nation, Judah, not the nations. But no, I want you to look at the, get the bigger picture, get the bigger historical context of where you are here with all this. And see, wonder and be astounded. Wonder and be astounded. You may not be ready for this, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Because I'm coming to answer your prayers, but you're not going to believe it. Well, Lord, what are you going to do? Verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. An older word for the Babylonians. And so mostly I'll be, we'll be saying the Babylonians. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. Well now, Habakkuk now really is getting confused. What do the Babylonians have to do with all this? Lord, I want you to work in our nation. I want you to meet the needs of, our, of Judah. I've been pouring my, pouring my heart out to you for this. And you're saying, look at the nation, look at the Babylonians? Well, you're familiar with them, aren't you, Habakkuk? Well, yes, I know, they're to the north here. A formidable uh, nation, very strong nation. But what does that have to do with my prayers? Are you going to answer my prayers? Habakkuk, I am answering your prayers. Look at them. But be ready, be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you will not believe if I told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. And then he says, I'm going to describe them to you, Habakkuk. First of all, it's a bitter and hasty nation. It's a a fierce and uh, impetuous nation. They march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. This army of men is is a very strong army of men. And they're coming and they're going to spread out. They're going to seize property that is not theirs. Verse 7, they are dreaded. They are fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. So not only are they strong and fierce, and arrogant, and uh, without any dignity, but they also have this cavalry. Now, this was something new in those days, a rather new type of warfare. What an awesome, terrifying spectacle it had to be to nations who were being overrun by the Babylonians. See this force of, of horsemen coming down, the thundering hoofs, and coming in with their swords and all the rest, and yelling and screaming. And doing all these terrible, terrible things. Swift like horses, fiercer than wolves, horsemen like eagles. All the while, at the end of verse 9, they all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. They grab some captives here, they grab some captives here, no big thing. They are taking people and enslaving them as they come. Quite a picture. Verses 10 and 11. At kings, they scoff. And at rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. That would be building up uh, uh, 
dirt earthworks so they could get up to the walls and climb over the walls and send their armies over. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, mocking authority, mocking fortresses that are in their ways. King Nebuchadnezzar was the king at the time, and he did set Jehoiakim on Jerusalem's throne when they came into Judah. Later he deposed his son, Jehoiakim, and made Zedekiah king, and he put his eyes out. The kind of idea of what the Babylonians were like. They were very mean, cruel people. All the while taking glory to themselves. Verse 11. Guilty men whose own might is their God. And that last phrase there, verse 11, things change just a little bit here. Because from God's perspective, they are guilty. Notice that. They're doing all these things, but they are guilty men because their own might is their God. They're not worshiping me. But I'm still on the throne. Habakkuk, I'm still in charge here, not the Babylonians. I'm going to use them, but I'm still on the throne. Now, of course, the Babylonians failed to realize that they were being used by God. They credited all their success to their own God or gods. They didn't understand the true meaning of history. Many of you are familiar with this little thing. It's been around for years. History is his story. God's story. His story. History. Keep that in mind as we think of what's happening in our world. Now the Babylonians and other nations mentioned the Old Testament didn't realize that they were only part of the destiny of God's people. God has not forgotten Judah. God has not forgotten his covenant promises to them. He has not forgotten his promise to send the Christ one day to be their savior and deliverer. God's overall. He started the historical process. He's controlling it, and he will bring it to an end. Habakkuk, you need to keep that big picture in mind here. Nevertheless, after these words from the Lord, you have to think Hannah's standing there in stunned silence. What kind of an answer is that? Lord, I can hardly believe what you've said. Judah may be bad, quite bad, but the Babylonians are worse, far worse. How can you allow ruthless killers to overthrow a less sinful people? Now, if Habakkuk reacted this way, imagine what it been like, was like when he brought his message to Judah. The Lord is bringing the Babylonians in and they're going to conquer you and punish you for your sinful ways and your idolatry. Did you hear what crazy Habakkuk's been saying? Yeah, I heard him the other day. Hard to believe. He says God's going to use the Babylonians to punish us. As if God would do anything like that. Don't listen to him. Prophets are always negative anyway. Chastise Judah, his own people? No way. Paul quotes Habakkuk 1.5 in Acts 13, verses 40 and 41, where Paul refers to this when he's talking to the unbelieving Jews in Antioch, Pisidia. And in effect, he says to them, you're not believing any more than your fathers did. 
Your refusal of Christ as the Messiah and his gospel means that God is going to raise up a power to destroy and bring judgment upon you. And what happened? In 70 AD, the Romans came in and brought judgment upon Israel in that first century. Just as the Babylonians are going to be coming in to bring judgment upon Judah. I don't play chess. have no interest in playing chess. But I read someplace where in chess, an expert plans his attack far ahead. And he makes opening moves that mystify the beginner and lull the beginner into thinking, oh, I know what he's doing. Oh, I can beat this guy with no problem. He doesn't realize that the expert has more of a long view in mind and other moves that will pretty soon bring him victory. Well, that's the Lord. He's got the big picture in mind. And he moves his pieces as he wills. He has his plans and purpose for history, even way back in Habakkuk's day. So let me close with these thoughts for tonight. Who could imagine the strategy the Lord would use for our salvation? A baby born in an obscure place in Palestine, a little manger in Bethlehem, a little out-of-the-way place. Uh, Growing up, learning carpentry as a trade. Kind of forgotten. Nobody really knew what he was doing. He became a man of sorrows. A prisoner after an unjust trial. Beaten, spit upon, ultimately crucified as a common criminal. Suffering that agony. Unbelievable that through the death of Jesus, death would be conquered. Strange God's ways. But how thankful we are that the Lord sent Jesus to be our Savior and our Lord. So we need not be surprised if God begins anything in ways we cannot comprehend. There's really no way to give ultimate answers. Every once in a while, somebody will say, what's God trying to teach me? And I fumble around here trying to give some kind of an answer. But finally I say, you know, we just don't know all of God's ways. We simply have to keep trusting him and to, to be with us and to guide us through the difficulties of life. I don't know what all of you are going through now. Probably, probably every one of you are experiencing some kind of a trial, some kind of a difficulty. And you're wondering, why isn't God blessing me? Why is he putting me through this? And at that point, we have to remember what the Lord revealed to Habakkuk. Habakkuk, just hang in there. You might be astounded what I'm doing in your life. You need the long-range view. When God is silent, it can be hard to trust him. But when he speaks, it might be even harder to hear that, the message we'd rather not hear. So if the Babylonian army begins to surround you, remember God has a reason for it. The questions we should be asking are, what is the relation of this event to the kingdom of God? What is God teaching me through this? Is there something in my life that needs to be corrected? In other words, we need to judge every, every event in our lives in light of God's great eternal and glorious purpose centered in Jesus Christ and his church. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to dismiss us with your blessing as we leave here this afternoon and go back to our homes as we face the challenges of this week. We know not what it holds. We know not what... Serious news might come across our paths. 
what illness might strike us down, what tragedy might come into our existence. But Lord, we also have confidence that you will continue to bless us and be with us and not forsake us, and that you are accomplishing your purposes, even in our own little individual lives, in the lives of our families, in the lives of Westminster Church. Lord, you are in control. We submit to you and trust that you will always bring us through and you will be there at the end of all of our lonely roads. And we shall praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.